In his play Man and Superman, George Bernard Shaw wrote, Those who can, do. Those who can't, teach. To which we might add what French painter Paul Cézanne said, Don't be an art critic, but paint. From which we might deduce that film critics are frustrated filmmakers. And to that, it should quickly be added that some film critics have put down the pen and taken up the camera. Truffaut, Godard, Chabrol, Romé. It was they who first lionised Hollywood's directors such as Ford, Hawks, Wells and Hitchcock. But that was France and that was the 1950s. In America in the 60s, Peter Bogdanovich was aiming to do something similar. Growing up in Manhattan, he'd been obsessed with cinema from a very young age. His parents' unhappy marriage drove him into the local theatres, and there he took meticulous notes about all the films he saw, detailing and cross-referencing them on thousands of index cards. Here is Bogdanovich himself. I don't know quite why, I just started keeping a card file. I remember at the age of 10, I remember being my favourite films were she wore a yellow ribbon, Red River, and The Ghost Goes West. Uh, but I just kept, kept a card file of every film I saw, about uh, somewhere between five and 6,000 cards. And I kept the card file till I was 30 and a half. Went from 1952 to 1970. Wes Anderson thinks I should print the card file just as it is each card. Uh, photocopied and printed in a book. I don't know about that. The film that changed everything for Bogdanovich was Citizen Kane. And later, when he became the film programmer for the Museum of Modern Art, he got to interview, profile and ultimately befriend Orson Welles. Through further curation, he did the same for Hawks, Hitchcock and Ford, about whom Bogdanovich made a feature-length documentary sponsored by the AFI. Bogdanovich moved from behind the desk to behind the camera in 1967 when independent producer Roger Corman gave him the reins on a low-budget thriller called Targets. It failed to attract an audience, but it did attract the attention of the studios, and it was Bogdanovich's next picture that earned him a place in Hollywood history. Uh, oh, pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I've been thinking all week that I'd run into you. Yeah. I heard you was going off to Korea. Thought I'd better get over here and see you before you got off. Yeah, you did. I'm taking the bus out early in the morning. Oh. Thought you might want to go to the picture show. Miss Mosey's having to close it. Tonight's the last night. Yeah, might as well go. He didn't miss last night. The last picture show was a novel written in 1966 by Larry McMurtry a Texan who had enjoyed success from the moment he began writing in 1961. His first novel, Horseman Pass By, not only earned McMurtry awards, two years later it was turned into a film starring Paul Newman in the title role of HUD. Here is Bogdanovich talking about how he first came across The Last Picture Show. I was in a drugstore buying some toothpaste, I think, and I happened to look at the rack that they had, you know, paperbacks. And I was just looking through it, and there was a paperback called The Last Picture Show, and I thought, hmm, that's an interesting title. Sounds like a good title. And I picked it up, looked at the back, and it said, Kids Growing Up in Texas. I said, that doesn't interest me. I put it back. <laughs> then, um, 
a few months later, two, two months later, if not less, Sal Minio, the actor who's a friend of mine, gave me a copy of the same book. He said, here, you ought to read this. He said, you know, he, he says, I, I always wanted to be in it. He said, but I'm a little too old now. He said, but I always thought it'd make a good movie. Semi-autobiographical, McMurtry's story charts a quietening year of a 1950s Texas town. It focuses on high school graduates as they stumble towards adulthood, obsessing on the mysteries of sex and then being baffled by the enigma of companionship. Guess you hate me tonight, huh? Oh, Mama, you know I love you, but I love Dwayne too, even if you don't like it. I don't care. I just hate to see you marrying, that's all. You wouldn't be rich anymore and in about two months. I don't care about money, not at all. Well, you're pretty stupid, Well, you married Daddy when he was poor and he got rich, didn't he? Scared your daddy into getting rich, beautiful. Well, if daddy could do it, Dwayne could too. Not married to you. You're not scary enough. Well, you're rich and you're miserable. I sure don't want to be like you. Not much danger of that. You slept with him? Mama! Well, go to the doctor sometime and arrange something so that you don't have to worry about babies. You do have to be careful of that, you know. But Mama, it's a sin, isn't it? Unless you're married, you know I wouldn't do that. <sighs> don't be so mealy, man. I thought if you slept with him a few times, you might find out that there isn't anything magic about him. Then we can send you away to a good school. But I don't want to leave. Some wealthy boy. Why can't I just stay here and go to college in Wichita Falls? Because everything is flat and empty here. McMurtry's story is also about the older generation and what happened to them when their lives did not pan out as they expected. So the story is multi-generational. And while the older characters have long since come to terms with the way each have played the hands that they were dealt, it's more about the incremental discoveries the younger characters make about themselves. By comparing and contrasting those young discoveries with the older resignations, we see the gradual death of the town. You wouldn't believe how this country's changed. First time I seen it, there wasn't a mesquite tree on it prickly pear neither. I used to own this land, you know. First time I watered a horse at this tank was more than 40 years ago. I reckon the reason why I always drag you out here is probably I'm just as sentimental as the next fella when it comes to old times. Old times. For all the awe Bogdanovich has for Citizen Kane, the last picture show is more like Wells' second film, the deeply damaged elegy The Magnificent Ambersons. But where Wells' adaptation of Booth Tarkington's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel lamented the decline of an aristocratic family in the face of rapid industrialization, Bogdanovich recognized that McMurtry's story was not about decline, but disappearance. Bogdanovich presented the passing of the Texan town by making sure that crucial things happen off-screen. That is an awfully hard trick to pull off, because in the hands of a less capable storyteller, it comes across merely as cheap and flat, that the filmmaker didn't know how to dramatise the scene, instead opting to have someone report it so we learn of it second-hand. But here the feeling is that life is happening elsewhere, and by not witnessing it, the characters' lives are slipping away unnoticed. As I said, it is an elegy. Hey, Andy. Yeah, it's a wonder somebody don't steal the town. Hey, where is everybody? Sleep. Everybody's got any sense. Yeah, well, why'd Sam close the cafe? Oh, 
Oh, yeah, y'all been gone, ain't you? Gone to Mexico. You don't know about it. About what? Sam died yesterday morning. Right. Yep, quite a blow. Killed over one of the snooker tables. Had a stroke. Sam the lion? Yep, Sam's dead. He was quite a feller. The film boasts an extraordinary cast, with many of its members delivering pitch-perfect performances and or career bests. From the younger actors, Timothy Bottoms, Jeff Bridges and Sybil Shepherd, and then onto the older cast with Eileen Brennan, Alan Burstyn and, in Oscar-winning turns, Ben Johnson and Clois Leachman. An elegy usually mourns a passing and almost inevitably becomes nostalgic. But under Bogdanovich's direction, there isn't any nostalgia. The film just looks on as the town closes down and the fallen leaves blow along Main Street. And yet, for all the bleakness, it is neither depressing nor nihilistic, just sad. How does Bogdanovich do it? One way was through editing. The film has an average shot length of over six and a half seconds. Such a leisurely pace comes from the direction of scenes in which what happens, happens slowly. Yet another technique was to restrict the use of music to the background, where we just about hear it on the radios. By comparison, consider the way George Lucas used radio music in his masterpiece, American Graffiti. There, it was full of energy, excitement, and the music created momentum, not to mention a yearning for times gone by. In American Graffiti, Lucas fully embraced the past, while for the last picture show, Bogdanovich knew that holding on to the past leaves you in its death grip. Here is Bogdanovich talking about his shooting style. I remember the continuity fellow, the fat man, Marshall Schlamm, and Robert Surtees, the cameraman, came over to me and took me aside and they said, Peter, aren't you going to shoot a master? I said, what? And they said, aren't you going to shoot a master? I said, what's that? <laughs> they said, you know, the whole scene without cutting, so you know where they are. I said, what do you mean, so I know where they are? Well, you don't know where they are. If you... I said, yes, I do. This is untrue. Bogdanovich knew exactly what a master shot was. What Bogdanovich was doing was shooting the way John Ford had shot his films. Ford's diktat was, never give the studio a frame more than they need, because they'd only use it. By which he meant that if you gave him a choice, the studio would edit the picture away from you. So Bogdanovich was shooting in a way that would cut only one way, his way. It wasn't the only lesson he learned from his idols. From Wells, he used deep focus. From Hitchcock, he had the characters sometimes looking directly into the camera. From Hawks, he had occasionally his characters talk over one another. He even quoted from Truffaut's The 400 Blows, where the young students pass a magazine around the classroom. All of which shows that Bogdanovich was varying his style. There is nothing worse than a director who was one note, one shot and one tone. That leaves the story deaf and blind. The last picture show got ecstatic reviews, earned eight Oscar nominations and took in 22 times its budget at the box office. Bogdanovich consolidated that success the next year with another smash, What's Up Doc? And then in 1973, my favourite film of his, Paper Moon. But in 74, he crashed with Daisy Miller, 
an adaptation from Henry James's novel, and then in 1975, his career completely immolated with At Long Last Love, a disastrous comedy musical. He never recovered. How could such a talent fall so fast? A number of people who were there suggest that Bogdanovich owed a lot of his success to his then-wife, Polly Platt. Platt was a production designer, but it is said that she collaborated with Bogdanovich on the script without credit and gave more than an opinion on locations, casting, production and directorial decisions. She worked with Bogdanovich on his first four films, until Daisy Miller and then she left. More than anything, whenever Platt told Bogdanovich that he was making a mistake, he listened. But once success came his way, he only listened to those who told him he was as good as his idols. As for Platt, she earned an Oscar nomination for James L. Brooks's multi-Oscar winning Terms of Endearment, and then Platt became a producer in her own right, working with Brooks on Broadcast News, Danny DeVito on the wickedly funny The War of the Roses, and Wes Anderson for his first feature film, Bottle Rocket. Platt died in 2011, so we'll have to leave the last word to Bogdanovich. The picture became a tremendous success. Set me up for many years to, to do films without too much interference. Made a lot of mistakes. I think you know you you you, you get that kind of success early on. It's also difficult because you have to live up to it. And you're never going to do another picture like that because unless you just keep doing the same movie, how can you do it? You, you know, you, you know, do different kinds of movies. That you, we did that one. <laughs> you know, can't keep doing it. I remember I was having a conversation with Orson Welles one time, we were talking about Greta Garbo. And he loved her, and I did too, but I mean, he was rhapsodizing about her, and he said, and I said, you know, I agree with you, but isn't it too bad that she only made two really, really good pictures out of 40, you know? And he looked at me for a long time and he said, well, you only need one.